Good afternoon. You're on uh, the panel on RNZ National. David Slack and Nawanthi Samara Cohen with me this afternoon. Lovely to be with you. Now, there was a car fire on State Highway 18, a blocking of the road just after Green Hyde Road off ramp westbound. That fire has been extinguished and the car has been towed, but do allow time for delays westbound. And on the nationwide FPOS outage, Jeanette says, I was just at Lynn Mall and only some stores had no FPOS, others were okay. It was suggested it might be certain banks, not all of them, ATMs had queues for cash. To this though, pretty historic moment in New Zealand's parliament as Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky beams in this morning, saying we were one of the first countries to support Ukraine against Russian aggression. The New Zealand government has pledged an extra $3 million of aid to help with the intense hardship over winter generators. For example, we had given $8 million in humanitarian help and $48 million in military spending. Nationals Christopher Luxon described Zelensky as our generation's Winston Churchill. With us is Alberto Costi, Professor of Law at Victoria University Wellington and a co-director of the New Zealand Centre of International Economic Law. Professor Costi, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Key messages for you from this address, Alberto? Well, I would say that uh, President Zelensky has, in fact, again, structured his speech over issues of violations of international law in terms of use of force, but also violations of international humanitarian law. And as well, you can see in the speech, and it is 10 points that he's been uh, mentioning in many speeches lately, that already looking at the post-war era, when it will be important to reconstruct the country, to ensure to look at the environment, look at the remnants of war, uh, ordinance of wars. So I think he is continuing the message, but also looking maybe already at what the future will hold. What the future will hold, and I see some of these 10 points. are very interesting. You know, you had things like food security and energy security, but also mentioning ecocide and the protection of the environment. And this is one aspect, Alberto, that Zelensky said we could come in on here. He said that actually many people don't consider the impact of war on the environment. That's an excellent point because obviously when parties in a conflict start bombarding each other when they are at war, they need to take, uh, obviously they have to only, uh, they have to distinguish between uh, military objectives and civilian objects. Only military objectives can be attacked. And sometimes we forget that the environment is important. There is special protections under the Geneva Conventions. And in reality, all attacks that are directed against military objectives must also respect what, uh, what we call in international humanitarian law the principle of proportionality. That is that an attack must not uh, cause in- incidental loss of civilian life, loss of civilian objects that goes beyond a certain level in, in the sense that they should not be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage. And that includes the environment as it includes cultural property. So I think what President Zelensky has done is really put on the map there, the, the test or the threshold in international humanitarian law is very high when there is a violation 
of the principle of protection of the environment. The, the formula yeah. we use is long-term, widespread, and severe consequences. Okay. Alberti, our uh, panelists will want to jump in with some thoughts. Uh, yeah. Noanthi, it's extraordinary, isn't it, this, this, this war that's been grinding on now for so long, and now we're coming into winter. Those generators will be, um, sh- will hopefully be sure to help. Yes, I, I know, Wallace. I was actually just thinking about that, that we're going to summer, but, you know, um, whatever summer looks like for us at the moment anyway. But um, the fact that these people and the communities are just going into a very cold, hard winter. Um, one thing, uh, as Professor Alberto sort of mentioned, you know, around the Geneva standards for the environment. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'm sure, I mean, I'd love to know a little bit more about what your thoughts are for us to be doing more of than just being a funding mechanism, but also being a voice. But what else could we be doing, Professor Alberto? What What are your thoughts around well, this I, matter? Well, uh, it's an excellent question. I think that at the moment, what uh, apart from trying to uh, defuse the crisis, I think what we need to be ready to do is that once the war will be over, hopefully sooner than later, uh, there will be obviously impacts on on rivers, on the environment, and there mm. will be need for having experts to uh, try and get rid of uh, of mines, of uh, of, of uh, explosives yes. that have not been detonated. And I think where New Zealand does have an expertise and also the capacity to to go and help to to sometimes help rebuild the environment. And that, I think that is something something that we can play an, an active role as uh, being a medium power. Okay, David? Yeah. I, I'm wondering, um, Alberto, if these 10 points contemplate, um, to the extent that they're addressing rep- um, a rebuilding, do they contemplate reparation from, from Russia more than assistance from other nations? In other words, do you think what he has in mind is other nations lending a voice to uh, demanding those reparations, or is he looking to maybe see the rebuilding shared across a wider range so that the reparations don't become as much of a pinch point? Well, I, I, it's a very good point because President Zelensky has, on a number of occasions in speeches at the United Nations and elsewhere, has put the pressure on ensuring that Russia pays for the rebuilding. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that will be certainly something that will have to be discussed at the end of, of the conflict. But I think he's already enlisting countries to come in and help. He's also, if I, if I may add, also now includes in his speeches very much what will happen to those he considers to be war criminals in terms of bringing to justice those that have given orders, that have uh, given that have destroyed uh, cultural property, the environment, that have killed innocent civilians who are not involved in war. And I think that's the point has been, I think, hammering lately, this idea of bringing to justice mm. the war criminals. Because the monstrous things have been done. Yes. Yeah, there are monstrous things have been done, and it is unfortunate that uh, at, at the moment uh, it, it, we can still see these uh, these uh, events happening. What is interesting is that I think Russia has now moved a little bit its strategy towards infrastructure, mm. and but that doesn't mean that hitting infrastructure is valid in international humanitarian law. It all depends on the consequences or the ex- the impact it does have on civilians and civilian objects. But I think you can see that, that, that these speeches and I think that the idea that there will be at some point uh, some 
mechanisms that will have to be taken that to be opened, I think that leads Russia to, uh, I think, change a little bit the strategy. And where would China fit in this calculation? Well, that, that is very interesting because obviously before the International Criminal Court, uh, that would be impossible for the time being to have, to have a case because Russia is not a party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court and the other possi- only other possibility to bring to justice someone for a crime of, uh, of aggression would be to have a Security Council resolution. Mm. Oh, yeah. and, and that would be interesting to see. Well, Russia would certainly, would, would in any case, uh, veto such a resolution proposal would be interesting to see whether Russia, where China would stand. But I think that China has been trying to always go back to the idea of respect for state sovereignty. Right. I think they would be very worried of uh, ha- looking at, at mechanisms that would bring, I think, into the target uh, the, the leader of a state. Okay, great to have you on, Alberta. Very enlightening. Kia ora. That's okay, a professor of law at... Uh, Victoria University, Alberto Costi, also the co-director of the New Zealand Centre of International Economic Law. It's 17 past four. The panel, Nwanthi Samarakone and David Slag joining me today, and it's made news around the world, billed as the country that banned smoking for future generations. Selling tobacco to anyone born after January the 1st, 2009 will be banned. New legislation has passed its third reading. Other measures decreasing the number of retailers that can sell cigarettes, reducing the amount of nicotine. Critics say it'll mean a thriving black market and kill off small shops. 12 people a day, every day continue to die from tobacco use. With us is Professor Richard Edwards, the University of Otago Aspire Centre co-director. Richard, uh, Professor Edwards, kia ora. Kia ora. When you think about it on one level, it's quite extraordinary. Here I am at my little cottage in the bay, um, broadcast from home. My little boy has just home, come home from school. He's five years old. He's waving uh, through the door. I'm seeing him knowing full well that legally he will never have a, a cigarette in his mouth. Yeah, and, and you know, I think for most parents it's a really, it's a good feeling to think that their children are going to be at minimal risk of ever starting to smoke and becoming addicted to smoking. So, you know, I think this, that measure together with the other measures is, is, uh, is a really important step forward. It's a, it's a monumental step forward. Well, what sort of impact will these three measures have? Um, well, I think in some ways the most profound measure is the one about taking the nicotine out of um, cigarettes. That's going to make cigarettes non-appealing, non-addictive. So for young people, if they're experimenting with uh, cigarettes, they're not going to light them. They're not going to get addicted to them. Um, for people who smoke, they're going to find their cigarettes are, are no longer satisfying. They're going to find it, uh, um, they're going to be more likely to want to quit, although most of them already do want to quit. They're going to find it easier to quit and they're going to be much less likely to relapse back to smoking. So collectively, those things are going to have a, a, a huge impact, we okay. believe. Unintended consequences, Richard, and I know that our panellists will have uh, thoughts or questions, views, but smoke-free 2025 chair, uh, Professor Robert Beaglehole. He said, look, the bill may have the unintended consequence of penalising existing smokers by cutting 
the number of cigarette retail outlets to 600. Also saying that this denicotinization policy that you talk about here might actually encourage illicit trade, a black market that has been much discussed on other programs. What of this? That's what he's saying. Um, well, well, first of all, I think we need to remember the huge potential gains here. So any um, adverse consequences, if there are any, and I, I would dispute the extent of them, but if there are any, have to be weighed up against the massive impact in, in reducing smoking and improving people's health and, and, um, and reducing death and suffering. The black market issue, this is something that um, we've heard from, for example, from the tobacco industry over and over again. Every time any measure like increasing tobacco tax or introducing plain packs, etc., etc., they always say, oh, the black market's going to go out of control. It never has. Of course, there is, a, there is a black market, but certainly research we've done has shown that it hasn't changed very much over the last 10 years. And New Zealand is, is particularly well-placed to deal with the black market because of its geographical isolation, because of our strong borders. And, you know, the, the answer to that is that we, we just uh, increase uh, our efforts on enforcement and maintaining our borders, which is exactly what um, the action plan and the government is, is doing. So I, I don't think black markets can be a major problem. And even if it went up a little bit, what happens if it went up a little bit, but smoking went down a whole lot? Well, that, I would rather have the gain of a massive reduction in smoking and, and tolerate a, a small increase in the black market. Okay, so, so black market, Nwanti, there, but uh, according to Professor uh, uh, Richard Edwards here, uh, overplayed a bit. What's your thoughts, your questions here, Nwanti? Yeah, thank you, Wallace. Um, thank you, Richard. Look, I, I get the whole um, black market piece. I think that's always going to exist, and I think it may probably uh, increase a bit as well now with this with this move. My question is also, however, around vaping. I mean, it is so profound, and particularly amongst our young people. And, you know, we're finding schools are struggling and having challenges just around what sort of a framework or rules they should have. So how do we manage the vaping aspect to this, even though we are going down this um, smoke-free uh, vision for Aotearoa? Well, of course, there's two sides to vaping. I mean, vaping, for people who smoke, who switch to vaping, that can be uh, a good thing because vaping is going to be less uh, less harmful than smoking. Of course, we don't want young people to, to start vaping. But uh, and, and certainly, uh, we've argued that the current regulations on vaping and um, measures need to be reviewed to see if we've got that Absolutely. right. Mm, but, mm. But, I, but I think we do need to look at the bigger picture, which is smoking. Smoking is a much, much bigger... Um, public health issue, and these measures will tackle smoking, and, and we should celebrate Look, that fact. Uh, totally, I think? agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, thank you, Wallace. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, my background's in health, um, and so for me, you know, um, anti-smoking and sort of a smoke-free vision has been something that I, I would, I've, I've always wanted us to aspire to, and here we are. We're, get, we're getting there. Um, you, you mentioned vaping doesn't have um, such bad effects, or it's not as bad, but with vaping, from what I've read and what I've seen, you know, you can actually change the dosage of nicotine in there. So it could actually be violently worse for you than a cigarette. So how do we educate uh, the consumers on that? But also how do we make sure we still wrap that into this, this smoke-free vision? Well, the, the thing is about nicotine is the nicotine is not the most harmful part of smoking. 
um, by any means. It's a it's a very minor part of the harm from smoking. It's all the other. It's the smoke that that kills you. It's the carcinogens and so on in the smoke. Right. So, so I'm not I'm not saying that that nicotine's good for you and mm. that high strength um, um, vaping products yeah. are the best thing, but. Nicotine itself is not a particularly harmful drug. It's a very addictive one, and that's that's an it's issue. It's very addictive we, one. We we don't yeah. want young people yeah. addicted to nicotine, but it's not harmful um, in the way that um, cigarette smoke is, uh, which is exquisitely harmful, unfortunately. So, so that's you know that's uh, we we need to sort of separate out with nicotine. It's harmful because it's addictive, and that's particularly. Bad with smoking because it keeps people smoking, but the biggest cause of harm is from smoking is the what's in the smoke. That's that's the problem. Okay, David, thanks for that, Richard. I, I appreciate that insight into the um, black market argument. I, I had that suspicion, and I'm, I'm glad to hear it substantiated. And could I also just clarify? Well, I've got two questions. One is data. Are we at about seven percent? Um, uh, prevalence of smoking now, where it was once. Well, no. What? What? Where have we come down from, and, and is that the present present level? Yeah. So it's about eight percent for daily smoking, and about nine, just over nine percent for um, uh, daily smoking and non-daily smoking. It's come down from. Um, we don't quite know what the level was in the fifties and uh, after the Second World War, but it was it was probably around fifty fifty to sixty yeah. percent amongst men. It was huge. So it's come down massively. But it's not come down equitably. So we've right. still got, we've still got um, Māori smoking, which is about 20%, Pacifica smoking, which is about 18%. So when we talk about achieving a smoke-free Aotearoa, we talk about achieving it for all peoples. And, and so right. if, you, if you take the 5% figure, which is still too high, we want it lower than that, but if you take the 5% figure, that needs to be achieved for all population groups. It needs to be achieved for Māori, for Pacific, not just the overall figure. So we've always been very clear about that, and the government's been very clear about that. Yeah, and this, the, these levers for reducing av- availability seem to be, you know, quite quite significant. I, I would I would like to think that it could pull it down far, further. I I, I I do hope it proves to be so. I, just one other question. Mm. Um, the I was, it's just been ringing in my ears all day. The spoke, uh, industry spokesperson this morning saying, "Look, we admit it causes harm." And and then proceeding to mount his the the argument that Kim Hill said defending the indefensible but have a go, um, and and that is how on earth do you and this is a question for them really I suppose but I'm interested in your insight how on earth do you go on doing business when you know it does harm to people where is well obviously there's an absence of morality but I I just wonder if you've got an opinion on that. I think probably money talks. To be honest, um, I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, I mean, I trained as a doctor, so you know that that sort of thinking is completely alien to me. You know, I I, I can't understand it either. Um, but I think you know what the industry is trying to say nowadays is that they're different and they're part of the solution, and um, they're making alternative products and they they don't want people to smoke. But if you know if they don't want people to smoke, they should be supporting these measures. You know, yeah, why okay. aren't they saying what a great idea? Take the nicotine out. <laughs> Actually, Dr. Edwards, I do have a question. I do have a question on that, and I really didn't hear an answer. Um, he was this was Imperial Brand spokesperson John Mitchell, and he said, "Look, this will force people into a cold turkey de facto prohibition stance." Now, what do you say to that? Well, 
I take a deep sigh. But I mean, there's actually <laughs> quite there's quite good evidence um, from studies where people have been given these um, denicotinized cigarettes, and they've been followed up to see what happens with them. Um, and what and, and and had lots of sort of metrics measured about the sort of stress and mental health scores and things like that. And actually, the, um, I mean, people do get some withdrawal symptoms, but overall, the, there's, there's not a huge degree of suffering that, that results. Um, and just think about if, if you do stop through this mechanism, um, then the health gains in the future are just massive. So even if you do go through a short period of where you, you're feeling a bit um, edgy because you're withdrawing, you're not getting the nicotine, but then as a result, you stop smoking, well, the, you know, you, you're not going to be at risk of getting lung cancer or much reduced okay. risk. You're right. not going to be at hey, risk of getting a heart attack. It, Dr. Edwards, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks for uh, explaining all this to us. Kia ora. Uh, that's Dr. Richard Edwards there, uh, who is, uh, yes indeed, who is uh, the Aspire Centre co-director. I don't know about you, how did you find it giving up cigarettes? I myself found it extremely hard, extremely hard. 2101, what about you? Or Jacinda Ardern calling David Seymour an arrogant prick has hit world headlines. I'll say it just once. Some felt quite offended. I said it repeatedly yesterday. The Daily Mail headline, for example, Ardern loses it. Chris Luxon defended David Seymour this morning on three. David was my neighbour for many years. He was a very good neighbour, I can tell you that. So I just thought around the panel on this very briefly, Nawanthi, how did you see this? A government in stress, the end of a tough year, counting down to Christmas, inappropriate what? Well, I think it it is some of that, Wallace, but I also think, you know, this is a government that just doesn't like to be asked some serious questions. And when they are posed, there's a level of frustration, which I think was what got aired uh, without her knowledge. So I think, um, yeah, to me, it's just about, you know, when you're asking questions, you you expect good responses. We've got a government that's just lacked that level of transparency and a level of delivery, really, that's costing us all. David? I thought it was an... Sorry. No, keep going. No, no, that was me. Okay, no, no, David. No, no, no. Uh, Seymour says I think she's under a lot of pressure because her policies aren't working, getting under her skin. David Slack. I thought it was an objective observation by the Prime Minister of the way he goes about his questioning quite often, and I also take, get the impression that a lot of people are quite quite enjoyed seeing it. I entirely accept that not a other not all people see it that way, but I can tell you a lot of people do. It's an effective opposition, though, isn't it, both of you, to get under your skin rather than just being a mosquito flying around to actually uh, really get to the point here. I mean, uh, this depends is, this a little bit. If you're just saying it sotto voce, except that the mic catches you, <laughs> well, that's actually about, you know, we know enough about debate and the way these things work for that to be precisely what you will say when you're just rolling your eyes a little. Um, I saw Luke Malpas trying to make the argument that while Luxon is ineffectual, um, Seymour gets under her skin. I I wouldn't say it's necess- it necessarily re- reflects that so much as, like I said a moment ago, objectively watching it, I see him doing it, and and, and his, the tone he uses, and 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 again, I've met him too, and 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 like Luxon, in in exchange, he's he's a pretty agreeable sort of a bloke, but but the way he does that particular questioning, that particular politicking, is annoying to a lot of people. But you don't agree, Noanthi? 
Well, no, I don't actually. I, I think, you know, sometimes, you know, when, you're, when you've got those questions, you're really passionate. You, you see that from both sides of, um, uh, of the chambers there. It's just more about actually asking those questions. And I think it's, he, he's, he does it his, his way. He's got his own style. Uh, and rightly or wrongly, I don't think anyone should be called an arrogant prick, regardless of what you really think, even if you okay. think that whilst you're trying to respond. <laughs> Two, one, zero, one your thoughts on that or anything else, or you can email me, thepanel at rnz.co.nz.